In a certain sense, they knew exactly what they were doing. They were crucifying a man. So how is it that Jesus says about them, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing? I don't think it takes a theological expert to figure out why that's what Jesus says. The problem wasn't that they didn't realize they were crucifying a man. The problem was they thought they were crucifying just a man. When in reality, they were crucifying God. Now, you know the story, and you know the importance of that statement, that Jesus, in his pain and suffering, as people were nailing him to a cross, as arguably the most wicked thing that has ever happened on the face of the earth was happening, Jesus was forgiving. And in that is a beautiful picture of our Savior. But I think sometimes it's hard for us to put ourselves into the story because the truth of the matter is you didn't nail him to the cross. I didn't spit on him. You didn't flog him. And while our sins are what brought him to the cross, ultimately we weren't there. We didn't do it. Would Jesus forgive us the same way? I do think there is a way, though, that we can identify with those people who heard Jesus say the first word the first time he said it. And to get there, I want to use the thoughts of a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's a pastor, theologian from Germany in the Second World War. In fact, was part of a conspiracy to assassinate Hitler, although he failed and died for it. He asked the question, which is easier, to ask God for forgiveness or to ask a fellow Christian for forgiveness? I think most of us, maybe all of us, would prefer to ask God for forgiveness, right? In the privacy of our own bedroom, in our prayers to God, we'll ask for forgiveness for our sins. It's much harder emotionally for us to go to a fellow Christian and say, I'm sorry, I sinned against you. What Bonhoeffer says, though, is that doesn't make sense because God is holy and just and has wrath for sin. A fellow Christian knows the dark night of sin the same as you. He knows what it feels like to be trapped by temptation. Why wouldn't it not be easier to go to a brother or sister in Christ to confess your sins? Bonhoeffer would say, maybe. The reason is that we haven't been confessing our sins to God. Maybe we've been confessing our sins to ourselves. In the privacy of our own bedroom, although we would think of ourselves as praying to God and receiving forgiveness from God, very often what we might be doing instead is, well, telling ourselves it's okay. You had good reasons. Justifying ourselves for our sins. Now, you might be thinking right now, wait a second, do I do that? Here's the crazy thing. I don't think you can know. Because what would you say if you wanted to express that you really were confessing to God and not just confessing to yourself, what would you say? I was thinking really hard about it. I felt it in my heart. I knew, come on, your emotions are deceptive. How do you know you're not just feeling sorry for yourself? Now what Bonhoeffer would say, and the point of this story is that you should confess your sins to other Christians. That Christianity is not something that is done in a vacuum by yourself in your own spiritual but not religious sort of way. No, it's done in community with other Christians. But for the purposes of our study this evening, I want to ask you this. When you sin, do you know what you're doing? Or do you, like the men who nailed Jesus to the cross, intellectually know what is happening but don't understand the importance behind what is happening? Do you understand the gravity of your rebellion against God every day? 
I think what Jesus' words teach us is that, no, we don't. Like Jesus has to forgive us because we don't know what we're doing. He gives us a little insight, and you can see it too, as you look up at the cross and realize that's not just a man dying there, that's God dying there. And that was what was necessary for your sins to be paid for. You're far more wicked than you could possibly fathom. But you're also forgiven. Jesus doesn't say, Father, forgive them when they clean their life up. Father, forgive them when they realize how bad they actually are. Father, forgive them when they come to their senses. No, he says, Father, forgive them because they don't know. They can't know. And so as you hear these words, by the way, not from God specifically, but from another Christian who speaks for God, hear them as Jesus' words to you. For the sins that you can't even fathom the evil behind. The first word. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. There's no place I'd rather be than right here with you. Many a Twitter-pated couple has shared those words with one another, probably looking over some beautiful skyline or over a fancy dinner. There's no place I'd rather be than right here with you. Maybe you've even felt that. With your special someone, that moment where you you think anything else in the world could not be better than this. It's easy to say when things are going well. When the food tastes good, when the sights are engaging, when the conversation is riveting, when the person that you're with is bringing those good feels, those good vibes. But what about when they're not? In Shakespeare's play, Henry V, King Henry goes undercover to visit the soldiers that are under his command. And he gets into a couple conversations, but one in the play is extended, and it's between the king, King Henry, and a man named John Bates. And as the conversation goes, uh, Bates says that he thinks that the king is probably pretty happy that he's not here on the front lines. He's somewhere else not having to fight this battle. The way he says it, by Shakespeare's words, is, the king may show what outward courage he will, but I believe, as cold a night as tis, he could wish himself in Thames up to the neck. Now, King Henry replies to him, by my troth, I will speak my conscience of the king. In other words, I think this about the king. I think he would not wish himself anywhere but where he is. Now, the irony of the statement, as Shakespeare lays out the play, is that, well, Bates doesn't know that he's talking to the king, and the king is actually telling him exactly what the king thinks, but he doesn't know it. He doesn't understand it. How could the king possibly want to be with me in this terrible place? So Bates retorts. Bates says, then I would that he were here alone. So should he be sure to be ransomed and many a poor man's lives saved? In other words, he says, I I wish the king were here by himself so that we wouldn't have to fight this battle and he would be the one who gets captured. And the king and Bates go back and forth for a while until Bates leaves and the king, finally reflecting on the conversation, says this, and this is the important part if you didn't follow all the Shakespeare. Upon the king, let our lives, our souls, our debts, our careful wives, our children, and our sins lay on the king. In other words, when Henry stepped into the shoes of a soldier and walked with those who were under his command, He realized the struggle and wished that in some way he could bring it all upon himself. 
Now, I have no idea if Shakespeare was channeling Jesus in the second word as he wrote Henry V, but it's hard to miss the parallels, isn't it? The commander of all people, the king of all people, comes down in human flesh to be with those people. And they don't get it. They think he must be like this, he must be like that. When Jesus very clearly says to them, no, I, I want to be right here. There's no place I'd rather be than right here with you. They still don't get it. And so they leave him alone. And so what Jesus says then is, fine, let all the sins of all the people be on me. So as Jesus hangs next to the two thieves on the cross, essentially he says this same message to them. There's no place that I'd rather be than right here with you. But then he says something better. There's no place I'd rather you be than with me in paradise. And it's the same thing that Jesus says to you. He comes into your life, your muck, all the struggle, all the pain, all the disappointment, and says, there's no place I'd rather be than right here with you. And he is. But then he says something better. And there's no place I'd rather you be than with me in paradise. Now, if it is God's will, I hope that that day when Jesus actually says those words to you is not coming soon, because I like you guys and I'd like to see you for at least a few more days. But that day will come when you breathe your last, when the synapses stop firing and you are ushered into God's presence with those exact same words. Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. The second word. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Simeon, who was a prophet in the temple, said about Mary, a sword would pierce your heart also. I can only imagine that those words did not do justice to what Mary was feeling as she watched her now 33-year-old boy hanging from a piece of wood. The voice that had laughed at her jokes and said, I love you, mommy, now was gasping for air. The hands that had wrapped around her in only a way a three-year-old can were now contorted and stretched out in inhumane ways, and the feet that went pitter-patter, pitter-patter through the house were now stuck to a piece of wood. I wonder if she was rethinking that time when she was speaking to the angel and she said, let it be to me as you have said. A sword to pierce your heart? If only. But I wonder if Simeon was getting at something even deeper by God's inspiration. Not just the suffering of seeing your child die right before your eyes, but knowing that somewhere it's your fault. Mary confessed in her song that she believed in God, her Savior, which means she knew she was sinful and she knew she needed a Savior. But then to watch it happen, a whole other thing. The Bible says in other places that the word of God is like a sword. It divides, it cuts, it gets down to the very core of a thing. And one of the things it does is it exposes us for the sinners that we are. 
You may be feeling that in a small way today. Mary was feeling it in a profound way at the cross. So then how beautiful when Jesus shows tenderness, compassion, and love to his mother. And instead of giving her the frustrated, the the exasperated, the how could you face, he says to his best friend, this is your mother now. And to his mother, this is your son now. And John, the apostle, took Mary into his home until she lived her last day on earth. Like I said, you're probably not feeling exactly what Mary felt on that day, but in a small way, I hope you are feeling it. Your sin, the weight of it, the fact that it is your sin that caused Jesus to have to die. Now hear what Jesus gives you, each other. John could never have replaced Jesus. I mean, frankly, who can? And none of you will ever replace Jesus in each other's lives, but Jesus still gives you to one another. And says, though the the world is broken and your sin is the cause, I will take your sin and I will give you to each other to take care of each other. So let the third word be an inspiration for all of us to take the love that Jesus gives, the grace that he shows, and show it to one another, but maybe even more specifically within the family. That husbands and wives would love and honor each other. The parents would raise their children in the training and instruction of God not exasperating them, but feeding them the word. And the children would obey their parents in the Lord because this is right. That's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus made possible. That's what Jesus gave to his mother and to you. The third word. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. We all have the fear of being abandoned by our parents. It starts uh, pretty early, usually the first time you're left alone in a mall or a grocery store or something like this, and you can't find mom and dad, and so you call out, Mommy, Daddy, where are you? Once we realize that our parents are probably not actually physically leaving us, it starts to become a little bit more deep-seated and emotional. Like, when we're growing up, we want our parents to be there for the things that we're doing when we succeed at the dance recital or the piano recital, when we score the winning goal, when we walk across the stage. We want them to be there. We don't want to be abandoned by them. And this affects people profoundly, even into their adult years. If you're somebody who didn't have one of or both, both of your parents around in your childhood, you know how profoundly that affects you. And maybe if you did have both your parents around, you know that the death of a parent can be almost as equally traumatic. It's like a part of who you are, like part of your identity is just suddenly gone. And then Jesus, who had the perfect father, who had the perfect relationship with the perfect father, who had won the father's approval to the point where God had actually literally opened up the sky and said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And all of a sudden, cosmic and unexplainable silence. If you've ever been abandoned by a parent or really anybody you love, you felt a mere fraction of what Jesus felt in that moment. Completely abandoned by God, experiencing hell. 
But if you've ever been abandoned by someone and felt that mere fraction of what Jesus felt, then praise God. Because that's all you're going to feel. It might be bad. I don't doubt that. But it is nowhere near what it is like to be abandoned by God. And because of what Jesus did on the cross, you never will be. To put it to you straight, the cross means this. God went to hell for you. And that is important because it shows how much God loves you. Some people think the doctrine of hell is a thing that actually discounts the love of God, but no, it amplifies it. Because it shows what your God is willing to go through for you. If I saw you after church maybe today or Sunday and I said, hey, I was at the bank and it turns out you had a debt, so I paid it. You wouldn't know exactly how to react until you knew how much the debt was for. Oh, it was just a service fee? Thanks. It was the rest of your mortgage? That's different. When you know how much God is willing to give for you, you know how much he loves you. And no other world, no other religion gives you a God who sacrifices for you at all, much less going to hell for you. So if you doubt, can God love me? He went to hell for you. He was forsaken by God for you so that you would never have to be forsaken. The fourth word. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was the plan all along. From the moment that the words, uh, he will strike, or excuse me, you will strike his head, he will crush his head, and he will strike your heel, were spoken. Uh, this was the plan. God had, had planned out, mapped out salvation every single step of the way. Prophecy, fulfillment, prophecy, fulfillment, literally thousands of times, and I'm not exaggerating with that number. This was always the plan. And so when Jesus says, I am thirsty from the cross, John, the apostle who writes that gospel, tells us that it was done in order to fulfill scripture. This was always the plan. It was no accident. And it's really good for us to hear because so much of what we do in our life is speculative. We look outside the walls of this building at the world that we live in and we wonder, What's the future going to hold for our finances, our families, our politics, any number of things? We're so concerned and worried about all these things. We wonder, is there really a plan? Is there a purpose? Is this going to end well? I wonder if people who stood around the cross thought the same thing. Like, this is an isn't man. He doesn't deserve to die. This looks like a grave evil that is happening in our society. And yet, if you know Psalm 69 and Isaiah 5, you know that when Jesus said, I am thirsty, he was doing it to fulfill scripture. This was always part of the plan. Even though it looked evil on the outside, God was accomplishing the greatest good that had ever happened for humanity. So let me ask you a question. As you look at the evil and chaos around us in our world, do you know what the scripture says about it? Do you know that God has given us the answers, that God has talked about these things before they have happened, that he has given us words of comfort in order to guide us through these things and direction for how to live and speak and think? I would guess for many of you, if you're like the normal North American Christians, that's something that's a struggle for you, to open your Bible, to be in it devotionally, to attend Bible study, to be at worship every Sunday. God be praised. I do think Cross of Life does this pretty well, but it's a struggle for us. Here's some good news. Even if you don't, 
Jesus will still fulfill the scriptures. I wonder how many people standing there thought about Psalm 69 and Isaiah 5. I wonder if John even thought about it as it was happening. Maybe later as he reflected on it and he thought about what Jesus said, he thought, oh yeah, that was what was supposed to happen. The fact is Jesus still went through with it. Jesus knows the scripture better than any of us will know it and he is accomplishing what is laid out in it. God be praised for that because it means your sin is forgiven and your eternity is secure. So then let me give you a challenge. Read the Bible. Know the word. Be here to hear it preached. Be in Bible study to study it with other Christians. Not because it's going to save you. You're already saved. And I believe the vast majority, if not every single person in this room, believes that. You know what Jesus has done, and it is certain. But read the scriptures so that as you go through this veil of tears, you're not miserable. People who were at that cross that day, who did not know Isaiah 5 and Psalm 69, they were miserable. What was going on? But if they would have known what the scripture said, they would have said, ah, all according to plan. So let's be a community that's like that. As we look out at the world, as we look at our own lives, let's find where the scripture teaches us, this is all according to plan. The fifth word. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge of a stalk on, the, of a, on a stalk of a hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When Jesus says, it is finished, what does he mean? For you English nerds out there, what's the antecedent of his pronoun, it? I think some people would say the suffering Right? He's been beaten up and, and eventually given the arguably most torturous thing that humans have invented to kill one another. It's finally over. It's finished. Some would maybe have a more grandiose vision. The whole plan of salvation, right? Everything that was necessary for your and my salvation has been accomplished. It is finished. But what if it was more than that? What if the reason the it doesn't have an antecedent is that everything is the antecedent? That it is all of it, everything. All of it is finished. You want some proof? The Apostle Paul says in the book of Colossians, you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He says to the Ephesians, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. To the Romans, he says, those he justified, he also glorified. And the author to the Hebrews writes, God left nothing that is not in subjection to Jesus, Although at the present time, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. As far as God's concerned, all of it is finished. As far as God's concerned, you're already seated in the heavenly realms, not in some padded chairs in Mississauga. As far as God is concerned, you're not still living. You died and your life is so eternally secure in Christ. All of it is finished. And so take that and press it down on whatever your problem is. You worried about dying? It is finished. You worried about your finances? It is finished. You worried about your family? It is finished. You worried about your health, physical or mental? It is finished. Whatever it is that you struggle with, press that down on it and know that everything that was necessary for your salvation and everything that is coming after has all been taken care of by the one who paid his life to earn it. So you're free. 
Go out. Live. Enjoy the things that God has given. Because all of it has been taken care of. All of it has been guaranteed in the words of the man from the cross. It is finished. The sixth word. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Some of you know that uh, in southern Ontario, we just went through the darkest winter in 80 years. Uh, Over January, in the beginning of February, this part of Ontario saw only two days that were mainly sunny. In fact, if you lived in London, it was even worse. You only had one day in that time period that was mainly sunny. Did you feel it? I know I did. I don't usually suffer from any sort of seasonal affective disorder, but I definitely could tell I was a little bit more grumpy, a little bit more tired, a little bit more self-medicating, and all those sorts of things. Maybe some of you felt it, but it was just one winter. It's starting to to lighten up, right? The the days are now light until past 7 o'clock, and did you see what the weather's going to be like next week? It's going to be beautiful. It's spring again. The darkness that we felt was only a passing darkness, but the darkness on that day was far more profound. It wasn't just a darkness because the weather patterns weren't aligning correctly to keep people happy. It was a weather pattern that was, well, it was divine. Because the earth was groaning as the one that gave it life had his life slipped from his fingers. The Bible tells us that darkness was over the land from noon until three in the afternoon, and even non-biblical records will tell us that people who knew that when there were supposed to be solar eclipses said it was like there was a solar eclipse, except there wasn't supposed to be one. And then the temple curtain gets torn in two. The temple curtain was a really interesting thing. It was this long, tall curtain that separated the rest of the temple complex from this inner room called the Most Holy Place or the Holy of Holies, the place where God's presence was contained on earth. The the curtain itself was covered in pictures of angels, which were to remind people of the angels that Jesus had had put outside the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve had fallen into sin. To mark that you can't come into God's garden anymore. You can't be in the presence of God because you are sinful people. But now, on that day when darkness covered the land because the Son of God was dying, that curtain was torn from top to bottom, from God to us, to open once again that door to paradise, to the presence of God, to everything that we've hoped and dreamed for, for everything that that every longing that you've ever had is really ultimately pointing to. But it also meant because of that, now not only was, were you able to go into God's presence, but God's presence would be with you. That you didn't have to go into one spot on the earth to find God. Anywhere where his church was gathered around his word and his sacraments, there he would be with them. He's here right now. This is the temple because you are here and the word is here and we're hearing it. So as Jesus breathes his last and commits himself to his father, Here in this, the moment when all salvation is given freely to you. Not because of your work, not because of your effort, not because you're a pretty put-together person or you're generally pulling it off in life, but because Christ has done it all for you. Enter in through God's word, through baptism, through the Lord's Supper. It may be dark outside, although not today, I suppose, but the light has come and the light will be here forever. The seventh word, 
It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun had stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. 